I do not believe that the Islamic Republic of Iran has any mercy on its own people and would at any point in time move towards an inclusive society. What I believe is needed is a peaceful transition of power, and the passage for this transition can only be guaranteed by the international community. Hello, this is Somaya Dehban, a devoted Dutchified Iranian whose life is quite interwoven with politics. I am the creator and host of Your Native Analyst, a podcast for anyone who has ever wondered what is really going on in Iran and the Middle East, and how on earth does that affect us in Europe and the Netherlands. This content is shaped around my personal yet political experiences as an Iranian living in exile, as well as a naturalized Dutch citizen. It is also inspired by my cross-sector work spanning academia, politics, civil society, and the private sector. In this podcast series and its dedicated newsletter, I contextualize the news about Iran and the Middle East for the European and the Dutch politicians, as well as the general public. And during this, I unveil the nuances that are lost in translation. The aim is to modulate the view of our European and Dutch representatives when negotiating with the Iranian government and collectively move towards a just and sustainable international community. Join me every second Tuesday of the month to hear about the reality of life in that part of the world. Now let's unveil this episode of Your Native Analyst. Welcome to the sixth episode of Your Native Analyst. Thank you for showing up and tuning in. The month of March is always an exciting month for me because the spring starts in this month. And as you may know, Iranians celebrate the beginning of spring as the beginning of their new year. As I mentioned in the December episode, I feel quite blessed to be able to celebrate the new year twice every year. This March, though, is extra exciting for me because there are two special events happening this month. First, on 11th of March, I will be giving my first TEDx talk in Den Haag, and the theme is Reinventing the Wheel. I'm very happy to have this opportunity, especially that I'm selected for this talk based on my fair-binding model. Second, during the third week of March, over a course of three days, local municipality elections will take place in the Netherlands. I'm on the list of candidates for my party. This is the first time for me to be on the election list on behalf of my party. As a Dutchified Iranian living in exile, this is such a proud moment for me, and I can only hope for my fellow Iranians to also one day get the chance to freely represent the party of their own choice in Iran. Now, with these exciting news, let's talk about what I have prepared for this episode. 
In this episode, I talk about guiding coalition in the first segment. Guiding coalition is the second stage of my personal and organizational model, verbinding. In the second segment of this podcast, I talk about Iran-Iraq war that lasted for eight years during the 80s. And in the last segment, as this is a quarterly episode, I highlight some of the topics in my three other podcasts and share how they are connected with your native analyst. In many occasions, when we are in the process of transformation, we take an isolated approach. What I mean by isolated is that we look at change from a single perspective, or from the perspective of the majority, or the perspective of the change initiator. This could alienate the community as a whole, and prevent them from joining the initiative, let alone being part of the implementation and scaling. We also look at the change without taking into account the context in which we want to bring about it. This can be the recipe for failure of our change efforts. Having a guiding coalition that is representative of our community and comprehends our context is quite important. And this coalition needs to be set up at the very beginning of our transformation process. In this episode, I share with you how by creating a guiding coalition, not only we can mobilize and facilitate the relevant groups and stakeholders in our community, we can also look into scaling our efforts. Running our systemic review, we then need to set up a coalition of unlikely allies to lead the change that we want to see. Through uh, promoting synergistic actions, this coalition will be open to everyone who has something to say and contribute. Let me give you some examples. How many times have you witnessed throughout your career that Your organization is about to go through a transformation, like the IT system is going to be changed, or the reporting process is going to change, or the internal learning and development is going to change. And then how many times of these occasions have you seen that after such an announcement, a group of external consultants are imported in, and after a few weeks, they put together a fancy presentation telling you that this is the change that is going to take place, this is the process, and even a few weeks or a month passes, and you don't see any of that change happening. And you think to yourself, it's nice that you're saying this and you're presenting it this, but my boss is not doing it and it actually doesn't concern me, or why should I even be involved because uh, nobody is following? If any of these questions has come to your mind, it is an indication that the change process has not been guided by a coalition that is representative of the people who are affected by this change. And this coalition is not sufficiently engaged with this process to guide the whole organization, the whole community through the process of transformation and change. 
for a change management, a transformation to be impactful, durable, and scalable, we need it to be owned by everyone who is impacted by it in one way or another. In a small-scale transformation, we can directly discuss the impact of the change with all parties involved. A couple of weeks ago, in our household, for instance, I wanted to change our dining time. It was a very simple change, yet the impact of it was quite different and noticeable on my partner and on my children. It meant for my partner that he should change his working hours to be available for the new dining time. And for my children, they needed to adjust their playtime and homework time to be able to join us at the new dining time. In this case, I could directly talk to my partner and my children. And first I talked to my partner and I shared my reasoning and explained why it would help us and make our family dynamic more interesting if we change our dining hour. And as soon as he was on board with this change, he supported me in convincing our children and bringing them also on board with this change. My partner and I became the guiding coalition to guide the change and set examples for our children. Now, imagine in a bigger, much bigger context at a community level or organizational level. It is not easy to directly speak with all the people involved and all the people who are impacted by the process of this change. So the best is to find true representatives of different groups. Here is where the notion of diversity and inclusion becomes very important. When we are putting together a guiding coalition, we need to bring on board people from different age, different ethnic background, different gender, different sex, different levels of income, different levels of education, different networks, and any other category that is important to show a diverse and inclusive group. When we have a truly diverse and inclusive representation, we can count on this coalition of unlikely allies to move the process of change forward and bring back the message of change to their own communities that they are representing. They would set the example and they would guide the process collectively. Of course, in all of this, it's very important to take into account the context. We can talk about change from different perspectives, how it impacts different people, but we also need to talk about change in the context that it is happening. With this information, let's move to the next segment, which is about the eight years of war between Iran and Iraq back in the 80s. Regardless of its origin and whether we call it holy or not, from my personal perspective, a war is never morally justified. The aftermath of war, its casualties and damages, leave generational marks on the community. I was born and raised during the Iran-Iraq War. The war started after the 1970 revolution, about which we talked in our previous episode. In September 1980, Iraq 
invaded Iran in a full-scale invasion and took over the oil-rich province of Khuzestan next to the border of the two countries. The excuse of Iraq to invade Iran under the power of Saddam Hussein was to prevent the spread of Shia-driven Islamic Republic. Since its inception, Islamic Republic has made it very clear that they want to export their ideology to the region and to the world to save the humanity from capitalism and corruption. For Sunni-driven regime of Saddam Hussein, this seemed to be a huge red flag, especially that the majority of Iraqis were Shiites. There are close ethnic ties between Iranians and Iraqis. My own grandmother was born in Najaf, one of major cities of Iraq. However, her grandparents were from Iran. Given the post-revolution chaos in Iran in those days, and the fact that Islamic Republic had executed many of the generals of the army, there was a huge gap in Iran's ability to respond to Iraq's invasion. Iraq, however, could progress in its invasion for only about three months. And after that, the progress was halted and later around June 1982, Iran could push back the Iraqi military to its borders. One might think that this could have been the end of the invasion and the end of the war. Yes, indeed, this could have been the end of the war. But Khomeini the founder and the supreme leader of Iran decided to invade Iraq to free and save the Shiites in Iraq and gain access to major holy cities of Najaf and Karbala, where the shrines of the first and third Shiite imams are located. During this time, the motto of Islamic Republic for exporting its revolution was in full display. And later, when Iran made progress in invading Iraq, Khomeini said that the next stop for exporting the Islamic Revolution is Jerusalem, which was a clear threat towards Israel. Before the revolution, Iran and Israel were great allies, and both were heavily supported by the United States. However, after the revolution, one of the first declarations of Islamic Republic was denouncing its relation with United States and calling it the Great Satan and naming Israel as a cancerous tumor that should be destroyed. Back in college for my final thesis, I wrote an article about this war, which is also known as the Holy War. I went into the details of how holy wars are defined and how Iran moved from defending its borders to invading others. The main research question that I tried to answer was about coping mechanisms of women who lost a male figure during this war by interviewing widows, mothers, sisters, and daughters of fallen soldiers. It was one of the most intense interviews that I had to conduct in my life. What I learned from these interviews was that the main comforting factor for these women was the so-called holiness of the war. My data was not complex enough to conclude whether there would be a difference in perspectives of the women who lost their loved ones in the first three years of the war or the ones 
who lost their loved ones in the last five years of the war. Whether a war is called holy or not, in my perspective, there is no justification for starting a war. We have witnessed the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan by the United States and its allies. We have witnessed the war in Balkans, and we have witnessed the war in many other places around the world. Some of my fellow Iranians are in favor of invasion of Iran by the international community to get rid of the Islamic Republic. As someone who was born and raised during the war and as a human rights activist, I cannot support such an approach to Iran or any other place. At the same time, I do not believe that the Islamic Republic of Iran has any mercy on its own people and would at any point in time move towards an inclusive society. What I believe is needed is a peaceful transition of power, and the passage for this transition can only be guaranteed by the international community. With this information about the eight years of war between Iran and Iraq, Let's go to the next segment of this episode, which is highlighting and sharing the linkages between different podcasts. We live in an interrelated and interconnected world. To bring about change at political level, we need to take into account the interrelatedness of the challenges we face. As long as I remember, I have always been interested in a combination of different things. In sport, I liked volleyball and was in my school team, and at home I played chess with my brothers. At school, I was very good at math and physics, but equally scored well in literature. I loved knitting and sewing, as well as painting, and won a few awards for it when I was a child. In my career, I also followed different paths. I worked in finance department of my university in Iran, and within six weeks, I set up a control system that surprised the head of finance department. I worked as the curriculum manager of my college, where I redesigned the schedule of my whole college with over 150 courses and 120 teachers. I worked for various NGOs and could deliver the work that was supposed to be delivered in four days, only in two and a half days. I worked for myself as a fundraiser, program developer, connector, nexus strategist, and lately as a community guardian. To the outside, it may look that I have jumped from one domain to the other. But to me, all these interests and roles are quite interwoven with each other. Perhaps in one of the upcoming episodes, I get to unravel the relation between all these interests and posts. When I wanted to start my podcasts, I wanted to show the interrelations between different subjects. Basically, I wanted to talk about the wickedness of our lives, the challenges we face, and the opportunities we have. Throughout my career, I was always told that I should only focus on one thing. I should be only known for one thing because we live in a specialist world and generalists like me are not understood by the society and most of the times have no clear career path. 
I agree that we live in a very specialized society, but I disagree that there is no place for generalists like me. It might not be as visible as a place of a specialist, but there is definitely a place for me and people like me. It has cost me a lot of energy and effort to stand my ground for the role of a generalist in our societies, and I might not have got there yet, but I'm not going to give up. We need more than ever people who can show the missing links, who can be the linking pins in our society. We need people, we need generalists who can show the interrelatedness and interconnectedness between different subjects. On quarterly basis, I share with you what I have discussed in my other podcasts and explain the relations between them. In this quarterly, I share with you the highlights from December, January, and February. In all the episodes, there have been a segment where I talked about my personal and organizational transformation model. I've been talking about understanding and in more details about systemic review. In Scale Your Impact, that comes out on the first Tuesday of the month, I have talked about SDG number one, no poverty, SDG number two, zero hunger, SDG number three, good health and well-being, and SDG number four, quality education. In these episodes, I discussed how at the time of setting the SDG targets, it was already known that these targets would not be achieved by 2030. I also discussed how no buffer was set for unforeseen circumstances, such as the pandemic. And that's why the pandemic has slowed down the progress for achieving 2030 agenda so heavily and even in many instances brought us back to the level before the SDGs and the MDGs. In these episodes, I showed that quality of education, for instance, is not sufficient to guarantee a bright future for our children, since without a culturally anchored approach to equality, the families may fall back into old habits of child marriage or forcing their children into labor. In your funding network that comes out every third Tuesday of the month, I talk about terminologies used in the field of fundraising and how at the end of the day, fundraising is all about the relation built with the donors. I talked about the necessity of understanding the context in which we raise funds, as well as the role of consultants. I also talked about the new version of 80-20 rule, meaning 80% of your donations comes from 20% of your donors, and how this rule has turned into 95-5 rule. Lastly, I talked about the role of the board in fundraising, which is quite critical. The same with the importance of knowing the exact definition of terminologies used in fundraising, it is also very important to know the exact definition of terminologies used in academia and politics. For every research, we need to clearly define the domain of our research and how, for instance, we define impact. In many cases, impact is mistaken with outcome and effectiveness is confused with being impactful. 
or in case of considering the political system in Iran as a democratic one, we need to go back to the definition of democratic, where representatives are elected and not selected. In December episode of Your Curated Keen that comes out every fourth Tuesday of the month, I talked about the Iranian tradition of Yalda, which is meant to prepare us for the cold days and long nights of winter by putting community at the center. Yalda is applicable to our efforts to achieve sustainable development goals because without the community at the center, it is near to impossible to be prepared for the challenges we are going to face in response to climate change, for instance. I also talked about the experiences etched on my mother's soul and how it had impacted my experiences as an individual and as a mother. And again, this is a clear reference to generational impact of gender inequality or lack of access to quality education that are addressed by SDGs. I talked about my arrival to the Netherlands in January 2005 and how discovering my Azari roots made me understand how my father forged his new identity when he left his community in order to fit in his new community. From SDG perspective, this is linked to addressing root causes of the wicked problems. And instead of just considering them as problems, we need to look at them as opportunities. And in the last edition of this podcast, I talked about a life-changing event that happened 20 years ago in my life on 20th of February 2002 and how applying a systemic review to my own life has fundamentally impacted my understanding of choice and freedom of choice. In all these episodes, I also share with you what I consider to be the true meaning of freedom, and that is understanding the impact we have on the system and the system has on us. With this recap of previous episodes, let's move on to the last segment of this episode. In this episode, we talked about guiding coalition. When we embark on a transformation and change journey, we will face a lot of unknowns and we need to have the support of the ones who have walked through the process before. We also need to have various perspectives to help us navigate the scope and the impact of the transformation process we are going through. We need to bring on board allies from different walks of life to help us mobilize and facilitate this process. Change and transformation is never an isolated process. Therefore, contextualizing is of great importance. Having a guiding coalition help us not only to have these different perspectives, but also to bring back the message to our diverse communities. We also talked about the importance of understanding our motives when we embark on a partnership or a coalition. In my research, I have hypothesized that different factors impact the motives of civil society organizations to take part in a cross-sector partnership. And lastly, we discussed highlights of other podcasts and how different issues are interrelated and impact each other.
If you are in the process of change and transformation, reach out to your community. Based on your context, your community could be your family, your close circle of friends, your neighbors, your colleagues or staff, or your political party. Reach out to your community, but not the usual suspects. Reach out to the ones that you usually do not interact with. Reach out to the ones that you never thought they could be of support to you and tell them about your process and ask them whether they want to be your guiding coalition. You will be surprised by what you may find. At the end of the day, a change is only sustainable and scalable if it is developed and guided at the collective level. We cannot scale in isolation. We need to establish it in the context in which we operate and we need the power of the collective behind our process to make it work. And the only way that we can get the support of the collective is by engaging them in the process, the process of development, the process of decision-making, the process of implementation, and the process of scaling. What was the unveiling moment of this episode for you? Did you hear about something that impacted your view on the reality of life in that part of the world and how it impacts us on this side of the world? I hope you gained a deeper insight into the complexity of politics and how it affects us regardless of our regions. Want to hear more? Sign up for my thematic newsletters to get notified about each episode and more. You can do this by going to my website, somayedehban.com newsletters. Until the next unveiling, Bedrood.